he can get around that strutter or he can get around a hen, but I don't give him a lot of room. But when they see that Jake all by themselves, that's the the decoy that I set up for my shot. And uh, 139 out of 141 times, um, that Tom or Toms, if there's more than one, has come to that Jake and just starts to flog him something fierce. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Brad Cochran. Welcome to the DSD podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Dave Smith. And today, uh, we're going to talk about a topic that uh, we get a lot of questions about, and that is adding motion to your turkey decoys. Today's guest, we have uh, Richard Duncan, owner and founder of Strutton Brand Turkey Products. Um, and the inventor of the Strutton 360, as well as a diehard turkey hunter himself. Uh, Richard, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks to, to have me on. It's a real honor. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining us, Richard. We appreciate that very much. We also got to mention that you are an 11-time Grand Slam holder. We'll talk about that more. But also one thing that we just found out about you and this is really important that your nickname growing up was Dickie Joe. And you told us that your mom referred to you as Dickie Joe clear up to the time that she passed away, which we think is just so, so adorable. Not the fact that your mother passed away, which our condolences there, but the, the, the nickname that she bestowed with you. Yeah. Yeah. That's thanks for clearing that up, Brad. That's very important. Well, I'll tell you, um, I grew up in Iowa and when I go home, some of my close friends I grew up with, they, they still refer to me as Dickie Joe. So looks like I'm going to carry that for a long time, fortunately or unfortunately. <laughs> well, I, yeah, well, especially now that we've told the, told the world of it, but it could be worse because uh, I went to high school with a guy named Richard and his dad's name was Richard. And when people would call on the phone, we actually had rotary dial up telephones at the time. Uh, people would ask for Dick and they would have to ask, do you want big Dick or little Dick? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that we ever got to that point, but um <laughs> it's it's kind of funny. People, uh, my good friends, they still bring it up when we have family gatherings or, you know, we do anything in the community. So uh, everybody gets a little bit of a laugh and and uh, I do as well. It's it's uh, still kind of funny to carry that along. Yeah, I can tell you've probably already regretted telling us that that tidbit of information from your past. <laughs> Uh, yeah, sorry about that. Lessons with the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, Richard, tell um, tell us for for people who don't know what what a turkey grand slam is. Uh, tell tell us what that is. Well, uh, I follow the guidelines of the National Wild Turkey Federation, and basically, what the grand slam is taking one of the 
each of the four subspecies of turkeys in the United States, and that includes the Osceola, Eastern, Merriams, and Rio. Now, they have introduced the Goulds in a little bit of Arizona and a little bit of New Mexico, but that's not counted as the the Grand Slam. So within the Grand Slam, you know, they have really what they refer to as a multi-year Grand Slam where you might shoot, let's say, a Rio and an Eastern this year, and next year you might shoot an Osceola, and the following year you shoot a Merriam. And then they have what they call the single-year Grand Slam. That's where you shoot all four birds in the same year, which is a little more difficult. But if you live in the right state, for example, California, they carry three of the the four subspecies. If you live in the right area, you could shoot three of the four birds there. Then you got to travel to Florida to get your Osceola. But um, when I first took my original Grand Slams, I never really thought about it until I had taken three or four, and then I got to adding it up. And and so after that, it, it was a little bit purposeful, but it was as much doing research, hunting with my Strutton 360, as it was just shooting the Grand Slam, and then it kind of grew out of that. And Richard, were those single-year slams? The first few were not. You know, I've I've shot um, just bunches of Easterns, so I really don't need to get an Eastern each year. Uh, but the last seven have been uh, same-year Grand Slams. So uh, I'm one bird away from my 12th. Uh, because of COVID last year, I typically hunt Rios in Kansas, mm-hmm. and Kansas prohibited non-resident uh, hunters unless you already had your tag. And so I lack a Rio, and then I'm on my way to my 13th um, this year. So I, my plan is to shoot two Rios this year, and that'll give me my 13th complete my 12th and 13th grand slams. Wow. That's, that's pretty amazing. And then what, you know, what's your long-term goal? I mean, are you, are you just in, uh, in, enjoying this? You want to do more? I mean, are you just going to keep, keep going or do you have any other, other goals? Well, I think um, I do know, and I, I think this is very verifiable I believe that Dick Kirby said he shot 25. I don't know if they were single season grand slams. And I know of one person that has shot 40 that's been verified. So I'd like to get to 25. I don't know that I'll get to 40. And and the other thing is that, you know, for example, you go to Florida, I believe as a non-resident, you can shoot three birds. Well, typically when I go do a hunt, I'll only take one bird. I never try to shoot multiple birds. So you could theoretically do more than one single season slam the same year. Um, I'm going to try to take two Rios this year, but 
my wife has started turkey hunting with me and she's falling in love with it. And I'd like to get her her first slam this year. We're working on that. And then if I can get, you know, a couple completed, that's going to be um, just adding to uh, our accomplishments. But the, the real reason I did it was to provide or to capture footage for the Strutton 360 to show that you could take any species with it, irregardless where you were. And that's how it kind of started after I had taken my first two or three. That's really cool. Well, we're definitely going to dive into the Strutton 360 product, but while we're still talking about um, all the different places you've hunted or the different subspecies you hunted, where are some of your favorite places to hunt and where have you hunted for um, most of your, your Easterns and your Merriams? Oh, it's Eastern wise. I've shot birds in uh, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Ohio, Georgia, um, Alabama, Kentucky, uh, probably some other states uh, for Easterns. And, and Easterns occupy a little more than half of the U.S. It's by far the largest population. And of course, the Osceola NWTF defines that if you draw a line from where the panhandle of Florida connects to the main body of Florida, meaning going south, from what they call the armpit to Jacksonville, everything below that line is considered a true Osceola. So that's the only place you can go get those. And then as far as Merriam's, I've shot those in South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, and uh, Northwest Nebraska. Uh, and then uh, Rio's, I've uh, pretty much uh, stuck to Kansas. I've got a ranch that I like to hunt out there and have hunted with those folks enough times that they're almost like family. Um, now, but, uh, I'm going to try some different places and I think I'm going to, uh, hunt a couple Rios in California this year. Oh man, you'll love California. Um, I was just down there this past weekend was their opening weekend and they have so many turkeys down there. It's, it's pretty incredible. Um, and, and they're hot right now. That's what I've heard. I, uh, I'm looking forward to it. You know, for us being a flatlander, you guys will chuckle being from the mountains, uh, mountain state, but, um, us back East being a flatlander, you don't really think of California as a big hunting state, but I think when you really get to looking at it, there's a lot of hunting to be done in California. So I'm, I'm anxious and I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. And California has birds clear down in the, in the Valley, the Sacramento Valley in particular, and the foothills of the uh, Sierra Nevadas and in the coast range, which aren't especially steep or high in elevation. I think, most of the birds you're going to encounter are going to be uh, below 3,000 feet, roughly. 
So it it's not going to be too hard on you as a flatlander, I promise. That's good. That's good because I'm definitely not in mountain shape right now. I need to get there, but I'm not there yet. But that California is some of the prettiest country. I mean, it's just, you know, all we hear about California is, you know, just complete chaos, you know, in Southern California and, and their politics and government and all that stuff. But, you know, there's a there's a huge, huge uh, par- part of California that is, you know, really good, really good people and really pretty country and, it's, you know, managed really well. And there's a lot of ag and and uh, and, you know, forests and all that kind of stuff. But and the, the turkey hunting, like Brad said, it's just it's just absolutely amazing. And the and the, the scenery make is you know, a lot of the reason it makes it just spectacular. Yeah. I can't wait to get there. I'm going to do these hunts with my bow. So, uh, uh, that's, that's going to make it fun as well. I've shot a number of birds with my bow by far the most with my, uh, gun, but, uh, bow hunting in California is going to be a lot of fun. Well, and, I don't know that there's a better place to bow hunt than California. There's a lot of brush there. There's a lot of rocks and, you know, fallen logs and places where, where you can hide, you can still be fairly mobile. Um, of course, I don't know, you might be using a ground blind, but if you're not, I don't think that there's a better place that you can, um, turkey hunt with a bow, um, you know, in a natural type setup. Yeah, it sounds like it's awesome. I've been talking to the folks that I'm going to go with. One is a dealer of ours, and and the other is actually an outfitter that that we sell units to. And so um, I'm anxious to get there. I've I've been in Northern California quite a bit, and uh, uh, it's it's going to be a great hunt. It's going to be a lot of fun. I like hunting new places, new terrain, and and I try to make every one of them a challenge. So I'm adding a little bit of difficulty with the bow. So we'll see what happens. Mm, that's awesome. I do. I do love the the challenging aspect of of archery for sure. So um, you had mentioned before that you have already been out this spring. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. We. Uh, hunted the opening weekend in Florida and I felt like I was in Minnesota hunting in a blizzard. I never thought it could be (laughs) that cold in Florida in March. And actually the opening day, my wife shot her bird about 8.30, had a great hunt. Um, Bird came right in like we predicted it would, and she shot it and got all our photos and shot some video and did all that stuff. And then we reset back up. So by the time we got all that done, it was probably 1030. And I'm telling you guys, by 11 o'clock, the wind was blowing 40 miles an hour. The temperature dropped about 15 degrees, and it was raining so hard, I thought I was in a monsoon. And I'm sitting there in, in pretty warm weather clothes, you know, and uh, had no long underwear on. I had no cold gear with me, and it finally got to the point late in the day where I said, you know, I just got to go back to the lodge. And so that was Saturday. We were uh, set up to hunt through Tuesday. And as the 
weekend went on, it got a little better on Sunday, not much better on Monday. And then Tuesday morning, we woke up and it was a torrential downpour. But uh, I think the only guarantee in hunting is you're not going to shoot anything sitting in the recliner in front of the TV. So we decided to go out. At least it had warmed up to about 60, but it was still a monsoon, water everywhere. And um, we we got set up on the east end of this uh, uh, big pasture land. And it's, it's kind of cool footage that we shot. Uh, we brought this bird in from about 500 yards across these fields. And on the video, when he's coming in, what you see is just a black dot. That's all you can see. And so I had a Dave Smith Jake on the Strutton 360, and there's a certain setup that I like to set up. It's my go-to setup. And when the bird finally got into the field under a fence that, we were in, I rotated and faced him and here he came on a dead run. So it was kind of neat video. You start it and it looks like a black dot and all of a sudden it turns into a, a nice Tom. And uh, he had about inch and a half spurs, uh, weighed over 20 pounds, which for an Osceola, that's a big bird. So That's I was huge. pretty happy it turned out the way it did, but oh my gosh, it was, I'm going to say probably one of my four or five toughest hunts that I've been involved in. So I know people are going to want to see that footage. Where, where can we see that? Well, we've got, um, we've got YouTube and, uh, then we tie everything to our, um, uh, web page and so um you can find it both places we try to post stuff on facebook we're trying to get better at that stuff um i've been shooting video since 2002 and i've got hours and hours and hours of of video and we're just starting to publish a lot of that stuff so as time goes on, hopefully weekly, we will be adding stuff to our webpage and and I'm trying to get more into how you do things or at least how I do things. Doesn't mean it's the only way to do it, but what I've found to be successful and um, options based on what everyone has regarding decoys, whether they've got one decoy or they've got six. And so our plan is to get more and more of that up. Uh, one of the guys, uh, uh, Phil, my marketing director, is uh, getting better and better at editing. We try to do our own and we try to keep it as real as we can. And uh, so hopefully by the end of this year, we'll have a number of uh hunts up there, but he's working on this Florida hunt right now. So I don't, I need to check with him. Hopefully maybe by the end of the weekend, we can get it up. Cool. So, um, let's talk about your product, Richard. Let, tell us about the Strutton 360. 
How does it work? Well, basically, it's a, a box that's approximately oh, four inches wide, five inches long, and two and a half inches tall. What you do, you basically stake it to the ground. So you put a ground stake in each of the corners, and then we provide everything you need to set up any decoy. And you've got a two-piece decoy post. You install a stopper on the decoy post, set your decoy on it, start it, go over to your hunting position, and you're ready to go. So the way it works is, we have a momentary transmitter, basically like the key fob that you open and close your car door with, with buttons much larger than your, your car key fob. And we have a patented momentary control. And what that means is that as long as you hold one of the buttons, it will rotate. And we did that for certain reasons. Uh, as opposed to turn the thing on and it just moves all the time. You you find that if if you've hunted enough, turkeys move a lot, but they're not moving 100% of the time, especially a big gobbler. You know, he's going to move around and what the Strutton 360 does, you put a, a Jake strutter or a full strutter on our Strutton 360, and I've matched the rotating speed of a strutter as they get out there and spin. And a lot of times they may spin halfway and they could stand there for 10 minutes. I've got video of a hen that came out with a strutter and both the hen and the strutter walked out of the timber. They stood there motionless for 40 minutes and never moved. And so, it's it's not about movement all of the time. I say it's about movement at the right time. Yeah, that's that sounds like something that you you know learn learn over time. It sounds like a kind of a fun uh, a, you know addition to hunting and adding a, a whole new cool element to it. You know, fig, figuring that stuff out and and watching the reaction of the birds and. Uh, re, you know, fine tuning that, that sounds like a, that sounds like fun to me. It's, it's definitely been an education. And, and one of the things I've figured out sometimes by accident, you know, I've got a go-to setup that I use your decoys and I call it my love triangle. And um, I <laughs> discovered that by accident because of a ditch in a field. And basically the way it works is I'll put a strutter with three hands and you can do it with two hands or you can do it with one hand, but I'll set the strut in 360 up about 18 steps. And I want to make sure I can get a shot at that strutter or that strut and Jake. But what I do then is I take the three quarter strut Jake and I go further away from where I'm set up. And I try to be another 20 feet, 25 feet. And the way that works is the strutting 360 with a strutter and you got a big tail fan on that. That's a big flag. And it says, here I am. If a bird shows up down the field, 
150 yards away and you got that strutter rotating, you know, full strutter with a tail is going to stand nearly three feet tall. That's a big target for them to look at. And so it's the motion that gives them the confidence that the setup is real, or I should say added confidence. But when that bird, whether it's a dominant tom or a subordinate tom, when that bird breaks, it's like the closer they get, and once they identify that that three-quarter strut jig is out there by himself, I've, I've tracked this. So I've shot 141 birds with the strut and 360. 139, uh, 139 times that Tom or Tom's when they come in, they will go to that Jake because I say he's out there, he's vulnerable. It's kind of like a satellite bull elk, right? Satellite bull elk will kind of trail behind the herd, be on the scout outskirts, but the lead bull is going to keep him away from the cows. So I'll pull the hens in kind of tight to the strutter. I make sure I have enough room where if a bird does come to the strutter, it's happened twice in 141 times, he can get around that strutter or he can get around a hen, but I don't give him a lot of room. But when they see that Jake all by themselves, that's the, the decoy that I set up for my shot. And uh, 139 out of 141 times, um, that Tom or Tom's, if there's more than one, has come to that Jake and just starts to flog him something fierce. Oh, that's fascinating. Wow. So the the hunter in me is like, I have got to try that because, you know, I normally <laughs> use just a single gobbler decoy. And like you, I always try to be able to take the shot at that decoy. I really am not as concerned with the the hens. I kind of flank the hens around my gobbler decoy, but more often than not, the gobbler will go, you know, an approaching Tom will go to the gobbler decoy. So that's where I want to take my shot, but I've never tried multiple gobbler decoys and that makes all the sense in the world to me. And, um, of course the, the business side of me is like, Hmm, that sounds like a, a neat pack, a strutter, yeah. Yeah. a Jake yeah. and three hens. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, and, and a 360. This. There yeah, you go. Exactly. Uh, I'll tell you this, guys. I I hunt with a single hen. I hunt with just a strutter. I hunt with just the Jake. And here's the reason I do it. I do it because maybe Joe Hunter out there has only got a hen. You know, not everybody's got a full full flock, so to speak. So I try to videotape different situations so I can show people who may not have five decoys that they can <clears throat> do it with three or they can do it with one. But I can tell you this, I'm, if I'm working on a hunt to complete a slam, I go to what I call that love triangle and it's just something I, I came up with. Um, that's my go-to setup every time. Boy, I lo I love that. That's 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 a super valuable, especially you know just considering your experience and stuff. And you know we we have some some loser states where we're not allowed to use 
uh, motion. And it sounds like, you know, we could, we could still at least do the, the love triangle and try it. Um, what's, what's funny is, you know, our decoys do have a motion stake and so they, they can move in the wind, but the chances of that decoy moving at the right time, just the right amount of motion is astronomically low. I mean, it, it hardly ever happens, you know? Right. Well, I'll tell you, I, I think it's a little bit of an interesting story. I actually had the idea for the Strutton 360 about 20 years before I developed it. And I realized early on, and I pretty much learned a turkey on on my own. When I was a kid growing up in Iowa, unless you were on the extreme edges of the state of Iowa, there were no turkeys where I grew up. So I really never started turkey hunting until I was 24. But I did realize I went out and, and bought a hen decoy. It, it actually never looked really good. But I'd set that thing out. I'd have a bird come out and he'd be strutting and he'd come out and he would stare at that hen. And he might stand there for 10 minutes and then he just turns around and walks away. Well, what I started doing was I would face that hen towards me like at 45 degrees and I would take fishing line and I would tie it on the tail and I'd pull that fishing line. Well, that hen would turn about 120 degrees until the tail faced me. And I shot a number of birds with just that little bit of motion. Well, at the time, couple of things. Electronics that I needed was still very expensive. And the other thing was electronics at the time were still very large. So I really, and then I had no money, but, uh, and I still have no money. I, uh, that's, that's funny. Um, <laughs> but I uh, had the idea, and when electronics and price finally caught up is when I really developed the Strutton 360. So I had to wait over time, but I realized early on, even just a little bit of motion makes a world of difference. And so how long, uh, how long ago did you release the Strutton 360? Well, it's kind of funny. I, I should post a picture. I've got the first quote-unquote Strutton 360 I ever built. And what I did is I literally went to Walmart and I bought a $10 remote-controlled car and I tore it all apart. And then I took the um, kind of the frame of the car, if you will, and mounted it to an oak board. And I used a Primos B-Mobile stake and I screwed that stake to that oak board and I could drive that in the ground. And I was able to attach with a wooden dowel, I was able to attach a B-Mobile uh, to that. So I developed that thing and I've got a little collection of stuff that I've invented. And that piece of, of oak board with that little car frame uh, is in that collection. 
What I found with that, though, is you can imagine if you've ever played with those little cars, is that they were all too fast. So it's like the, the strutter I tried to use, it would just whip around. You know, I mean, it was going like 90 RPM. And so I would just bump it and it would spin about halfway and stop. And then I'd bump it and it'd spin halfway and stop. And it would only go one direction. And that's how I started developing it. Uh, that was 2006. Um, I came out with it in 2009 with version one. I've still got people that bought my first model in 2009 using it. Uh, my patent was awarded in 2012. And uh, what we have out today, the Strutton 360XDR is the fourth model or the fourth version. So I compare it this way. A lot of these original customers come up and at a, at a product show and, and they'll say, hey, um, I love this new unit, but why should I buy a new one? The old one works fine. And I jokingly say, well, I designed the first one too dang good. I should have had some problems with it. But I've got folks <laughs> using them from 12 years ago. And uh, I try to, to put a lot of robust engineering into it. Uh, the Strutton 360 current unit, as opposed to that piece of oak wood that I built the first one with you can run over it with a side-by-side -side or a four-wheeler and it doesn't hurt it whatsoever hmm. wow and they're uh richard they're 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 waterproof and and what's the range of the remote well what we claim on our packaging is up to 40 yards and we use what's called line of sight uh connection technology so if you put the unit i've had guys covered up with grass or they put it in a little dip and if you do not have direct line of sight it's going to affect the range now <clears throat> excuse me that was in model three we're now on model four where we've upped the power of the transmitter and you can be in a blind, hold the transmitter on the ground, and it'll run it to 25 or 30 yards. And then I'm doing some prototype testing right now with what I'm going to call strutting legs. And that will raise the unit two inches off the ground. When you raise that unit two inches, you can take that let's say 40 yards, although I always tell folks don't set it up more than 20 steps, but you can quadruple the range just raising it two inches as long as you've got range, uh, you've got line of sight. But I've got, with my older units, I've got goose guides in Ohio that they'll set them out in a field at 50, 60 yards, and they're still using the original ones that they they purchase. So a little bit of that, when you set that unit on the ground, the earth acts as a big sponge. So the signal comes out of the transmitter as a cone, kind of like if you had a water hose and, and you set it on the, coast, the cone setting 
and the signal is emitted that way. So um, if you're in the right area, let's say you're in like northern Minnesota, I know, uh, it's got a lot of iron in the ground. If you have iron near the surface, it's going to affect that range. But we have no issues at 25 yards. And that's a pretty good distance to set your decoy out because I've had a lot of birds come in. They'll skirt them at 15 yards. And so now you're talking a 40-yard shot. And I like them to be closer than that. And I've kind of got a, if, if we're bow hunting, I always set up a reverse love triangle, but um, no problem, 25 yards. We'll have the strutting legs out next year. It would be even further. Um, I'm intrigued. What is the reverse love triangle? Well, so what I do on a standard love triangle is I put the strutter, that's what I stake first. And and what I've, I'm using strutting jakes now. Um, and I will set that up at about 18 steps from where I'm going to be shooting, all right, for a gun setup. On further away from me, then, is where I set up the hens. And I always use three feeding hens, but I've used you know, stand-up hens, I've used lay-down hens, I've used different things. And then I'm a right-handed shooter, so I pull to the left the best uh, or the easiest. So I make sure I can get a shot at the strutter. If the bird comes to the strutter, you want to kill him there. But I can pull to the left, so I always try to put the jake then like I said, 25 feet further away, I might have a 25-yard shot at the Jake approximately with my gun. How I reverse that if I'm bow hunting, I leave the strutter set up at about 18 steps. Usually I hunt out of a blind for bow hunting, but you don't need to. I put that three-quarter strut Jake at seven steps from my setup right between the Jake strutter or the full strutter in the strutting 316 where I'm set up. So when they come in like they do, that Tom's going to come right to that Jake. I always face the Jake away from me. Typically those birds will come in from the side or they'll come in kind of 45 degrees from the back. Rarely will a Tom attack a Jake or another Tom head on. They always kind of want to, sneak attack them, so to speak. So it's seven yards. Your bow shot is seven yards. Wow. That's a shot even I can make. It's, um, it's pretty deadly, you know, it, at seven yards. Um, you got to make sure that you shoot your bow at 10 yards or less because I've had guys that I've taken on this setup and they're used to shooting at 20, right? You know, they're, they're white tail hunting or they're black tail hunting or whatever. And they're, they're taking shots at 20, 30, 40, whatever, depending on the terrain and where they're hunting. But to shoot at seven, it's, you gotta be prepared for that. So I always tell guys at least sight your bow in at 10 yards or less if you can. 
but it's pretty exciting when you're sitting there and seven steps from you, you got a gobbler pounding a, a, the Jake decoy, you know, and uh, I've had a lot of them on that Jake. They'll beat them up for 10 minutes. I've got somewhere I've got 20 minutes of video. They're just flogging on this thing. Um, and I've had them then they'll flog on them for a while and then they'll climb up on top of them and try to breed them, you know, and it's, it's kind of comical. Uh, but it's pretty cool having them at seven steps and, and you're going to shoot them off. I've shot them right off the top of the Jake, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and a big part of it, um, for for us and what we tell people is the show you know just the excitement of you know watching the birds engaging the decoys and seeing some of the really cool you know natural mannerisms of these birds that you won't get to see um if if you you know shoot them while they're coming in at 25 30 yards or whatever um i i typically wait and and give the birds a chance at least to engage the decoys um myself because it is it is really really cool to watch them do what they do when they're sitting there you know flogging the decoy and you know sometimes mounting the decoy like you say uh it just adds a whole another level of excitement for me oh i i I agree um it's it's the coolest thing to watch them work and and i've i've been fortunate i say it this way that I can hunt enough states and I hunt enough time to see a lot of things that probably a lot of people don't see. And you, if you do shoot them early, you do miss some of that. Um, and you, you got to kind of learn to read the birds like that bird that came in for me Saturday. I think what happened, there was three Jake's coming. That bird came from our left to the decoys and we didn't know it. We're filming and watching him to the left while there's three Jakes standing about 60 yards to our, our right. So this Tom came in to about five yards from the Jake, and then he instantly turned around. And I know he didn't see us. We were in a blind. And so I shot him. But I think it was the Jakes that was going to run him away. So it is cool to be able to experience that. If no one's ever done that, uh, they, they should try it. Uh, I'm, like I said, I'm fortunate enough to, to hunt maybe 50 days a year and I'm out there every day and, and I get to watch it a lot. And so I learned to read birds and that comes with having time to do it, you know, but it is a cool experience when you can, watch that happen. Absolutely. So, so Richard, tell, give, give us advice, uh, for somebody that's using the Strutton 360 for the very first time, like, you know, how much, how much motion and how often, like, let's say you're, you've got your decoys set up and there's, you know, how do you, how do you pair that motion with calling and just what, what, it, what's the, what's the general advice that you would give someone using your product for the first time? What I always do for a a first time user is this, and I kind of explain it this way. Of course, every hunting situation is different, but I say this, let's say 
you're set up on a field and, and here most of the folks are going to be hunting alfalfa fields or corn fields or bean fields here in the east. So I say, let's say a bird comes out 100 yards down the field and he pops out or he pitches down. First thing I do, and it doesn't matter where he comes from, and that's the nice thing about the strut in 360, I'll take the strutter, whether it's full strutter or a jake, I, turk in, I take and turn and face that tom. And here's what's going to happen. If that tom's a dominant bird, and you can tell what kind of bird you're hunting, if he's a dominant bird, when you turn and face him, that's a challenge. And what that bird's going to do, if he's a dominant tom, he's going to break and come in. My wife's hunt Saturday. She shot a dominant tom, and this bird came in dragging seven hens with it. He wasn't paying attention to the hens. As soon as we turned and faced him, here he come on a dead run. And this was one of the only two. We went right to that strutter and started to flogging on that thing something bad. When he got done with he thought was with the strutter, he went to that Jake and started flogging on that thing. So if you got a dominant bird, a lot of the times they're going to break when you turn and face him. But if you turn and face him, I'll say turn and face him, let it sit there maybe 15 seconds, maybe turn it back the direction he came from. Um, 30, 40 degrees, let it sit there, turn it back and face him again. If he stays out there, chances are he is a bird that's either been beat up by a group of jakes or he's a subordinate tom or he's a subordinate tom that just got the tar knocked out of him. And so what you want to do at that point, after you let the decoy sit there for a minute, maybe two minutes, Turn that thing around so the tail is facing that tom that's standing down there. What that says that the decoy now is subordinate. It's a it's a act of subordination to that tom standing down there. So two things: that tom, he's going to think he's bigger than your decoy is. Number one, and he's going to come, and he's going to come because with that strutting tail. Uh, and, and you've probably seen it when a Tom's strutting and he's facing away from you, he's got that tail fanned out. He can't see behind him. And I've had birds run up there who were subordinate and you shoot them and they got half inch spurs, you know, uh, at least back here, they'll have a half inch spur, three quarter inch spurs. So they're a young, young bird. And I've had them where they would run up to the decoy and literally stick their head through the fan of the decoy but that's the difference of knowing a dominant bird versus a subordinate bird and that's the nice thing about this you can act dominant and challenge or you can be subordinate and trigger a reaction that way and uh, talk to us about the remote now um it, it has it has two directions is that correct yep. Yep, has two directions. So the way it works is if you, once you start the unit, and we use pro, uh, proc switch to start, to start it, 
and you pair the unit the unit to the transmitter you have then you go over and you sit down so momentary control means as long as you hold the button it will rotate that direction so for example if you held the button for 8 minutes it's just going to keep rotating that direction for 8 minutes once you let it go it stops then you press the button it goes the opposite direction. So it doesn't matter, and that's the nice thing about this unit, it doesn't matter where the bird comes from. Most time when you set up, you're gonna have a pretty good idea maybe where they're roosted or where they're feeding or whatever, and you kind of set up with that in mind. But with this transmitter, it's got big buttons that are five-eighths of an inch square, so you can feel them with your gloves on, the transmitter fits in your hand very well. It's waterproof. You don't have to worry about the rain. You hold that button. You can rotate it either direction as long as you want to rotate it. And then to, to you, to clarify, you, you don't add any motion until you see a bird. Is that right? Well, um, no. So let me set up another scenario, and this happens fairly often. Let's say you're set up close to a roosting site. I like to be set up, if the bird's on the roost, where he can see that strutter rotating. What I typically do, I like to be the first bird that that tom hears in the morning. So it's still dark, and I'm doing tree calls. And when it gets light enough that we have camera light, which is going to be lighter than shooting light, I'll do a fly down, and I'm rotating that strutting 360. A lot of times that bird will pitch right down to that decoy setup. But a lot of times they don't, and what they'll do is they'll pitch down. They may have 20 hens with them, five hens, whatever, and those hens will go the other way. That tom will follow them. So what I typically do when there's no birds around, I usually go through a call sequence about every 15 to 20 minutes. And when I'm not calling, the strutting 360, for the most part, is just sitting motionless. When I am calling, then I'll rotate it. And I usually go through about a two-minute calling sequence every 15 or 20 minutes. And I've shot a lot of birds this way. You have this scenario, they pitch down, they go the other way. I've shot a lot of birds between 10 and 2 because... In that flock of hens those birds had, if you're the first bird they hear, they're going to remember where you are. So a couple things I do, and a lot of people don't do this. When I know they're gone and I'm confident that they can't see me, or at least I got my fingers crossed and hope they can't see me, I'll run out there and I'll switch my setup around. Or I'll try to cut the distance in half between where that bird was roosted and where I was set up originally. And they'll come back. If they can't breed one of those hens or a couple of those hens, they're going to get bored with them. As long as they don't get busted, they're going to come back looking for you. And that's why I changed the setup. So between the time they're gone, I do two things. I try to do a call sequence about every 20 minutes. And that's when I'm 
running the strutter. And then when I feel confident they're gone, I'll either go and move my setup closer to where they were and make sure it doesn't look the same. Or I just go out there if I like this setup where I am, I just go out there and I move the decoys. You know, I'll take the three hens if I have the love triangle set up and I typically set them away from me. I'll go run out there move the three hens in the same diamond pattern, but I'll move the hens closer to me. When that tom or those toms come back, they know birds move around. They're going to have a different setup that they're looking at. And I don't know that a lot of guys do that if they're hunting with multiple decoys. They'll just go out there. They'll set their decoys out with in in a lot of instances not much rhyme or reason unless they're doing a breeding setup and they just leave it set there and i've seen them do that and so i've killed a lot of birds just doing those simple little tricks moving and calling about every 20 minutes and you can pull those birds right back to you you know if you're patient so what is what is what is your calling? What is your two minute calling sequence roughly? Typically, what I'm doing is, uh, and it kind of depends on the topography, but um, I might do a, an assembly call, or I'll do a Jake whistle. A Jake's out there; he's lost. He's looking for other birds, and then once I do those calls. Then I'm clucking and purring, you know. I got those feeding hens out there. They're content. They're not, you know, they're uh, uh, not on alert, but they're just feeding, clucking. I'll do one, uh, hen, what I call hen whines, and uh, it's it's pretty soft, you know. It's not a lot of noise, but about once per hour then, I always take a, uh, number of calls, I might get on my box call and hit that pretty good, you know, like a, uh, almost like a fly down cackle. And I've pulled a lot of birds quite a ways by hitting that box call. And then once I see them, I'll switch to another call to quiet things down. So most of the time though, I'll do assembly, assembly calling, maybe a cackle, and then I'm purring and plucking, maybe, maybe some soft yelps. And that's kind of the sequence I do about every 20 minutes. And, and I guess I don't have one regimented sequence. It's just, I'm trying to mix it up a little bit, but those are the calls that I found that, that work and are very effective. The other thing I do is I'll switch diaphragm calls. You know, maybe birds won't react to let's say a combo cut call, which is more of a raspy call. Uh, I'll use the same calls, an assembly call. Uh, I don't do a, a Jake whistle with a combo cut diaphragm call. I'll put a different call in my mouth, but um, I try to use a call with a different tone because there might be one tone that triggers that bird that another call won't or another tone won't. So I try to mix it up, but I try to use assembly calls, uh, whines, clucks, and purrs. And then about once an hour, I'll 
kind of hammer on the box call to try to reach out there and uh, pull them in from quite a ways away. And now you make your own line of diaphragm calls, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. We came out with uh, Strut and Ridge a year ago and trying to continue the whole Strutton lineup. And I came out, I, I, I laugh about it sometimes, and I, I'm sure some people looked at that and said, oh, wow, here's a company that's got one diaphragm call. But what I found was, and, and this is what I believe, I am in no way, shape, or form even close to being a professional caller. But I have been pretty fortunate to kill, I don't know, 300 to 400 birds throughout my life. And, and I feel lucky for that. But I call good enough to kill birds. Well, what I found over the last, let's say 10 years, a lot of call companies have evolved to more and more of these very complicated calls, meaning multiple read calls, these complex cuts, high tension, and for a guy that's just beginning or a guy that or or girl guy or girl that is learning to call it's very difficult for them to call with that type of call a lot of times they pick up the wrong techniques they use the wrong diaphragm pressure they don't hold their tongue correctly etc cetera, etc cetera. so i came out with this simple little single reed greenhorn call and the nice thing about a, a single read call is that uh, you can get so quiet. I mean, you guys have been in this situation where you're set up in a blind or next to a tree and you got a hen that feeds past you at 10 yards. Now I'm getting older and my hearing's getting worse, but sometimes you can barely hear that hen purring, right? And so... A lot of these calls to get them to work, you have to put pressure behind it. Well, with more pressure comes more tongue control. And more tongue control means more pressure on the call itself. And so it's just harder to learn. So we came out with this simple little single read call, and it's it's been a great call for us. Um, I get these phone calls from these people where they've said, you know, I've tried to use diaphragm calls for 10 years and, uh, and I would help them, you know, they would call me and I'd, I'd work with them on the phone at night and they're going out and killing birds. Now, uh, one of the other reasons I went and bought the presses and everything, here's another reason that I built a single read first was because it was the easiest one for me to learn how to make, and you scrap about 400 before you ever get one that is right. And I thought, well, that's just cheaper for all I'm gonna scrap. But it's it's uh, that's not the reason. But that's I I joke about that. That worked very well. Well, then this year we've added a, a whole complement of diaphragm calls and we've gone into the, the more complicated calls with, you know, you got sweet calls and you got raspy calls and our intent is to continue to grow that line and next year to 
to have Al Hooter and, and uh, Crow Call and, and keep expanding on that particular line. So it's it's been good for us. It allows us to do some marketing stuff that uh, with the Stratton 360 we didn't have, but that's, that's the reason uh, that we did that is to help more people get better at turkey hunting and have more fun doing uh, the things that we all love to do. Right on. That sounds, that sounds super cool. I know that uh, a lot of the people that are making calls are really, really, really accomplished callers and don't necessarily understand or remember what it was like when they were first starting out. I was fortunate. I had a brother-in-law who was a supervisor and one of the guys that worked for him was a two-time state calling champion uh, back home in Iowa. And at, at that time, Iowa was not known as a big turkey hunting state. And I, I don't know if it's known as a big turkey hunting state there, although they've got a lot of big birds and I love hunting there. But I kind of duplicated what Terry taught me and he started me on a simple little single read call. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate. I have all kinds of people call me and say, Hey, I've tried this and tried it. And here's what I bought. And I think you're right. I, I think a lot of these, uh, pro folks and I, a lot of them are my friends. Uh, I have close friends that are pro callers. But they're into the calling and the competitions, and rightfully so, they're very good at it. But I wanted to come out with something that wasn't as difficult to learn on and hopefully getting more people to enjoy the sport that, uh, that we're passionate about. Yeah, absolutely. And neither Dave or myself are by any means um great callers or at least i don't consider myself anywhere remotely in that category but um one of the things i think i do to maybe make up for some of my lack of control with a call is just knowing um knowing when to call and when not to call you know um learning how to read birds which as you mentioned is so important not just with your decoys um, but, but also with your calling, I think that's really, really important. That's extremely, extremely important. And I've, I've hunted with a lot of pro callers. And like I said, a lot of them are my good friends and I take nothing away from them. I wish I could call like they can, but you hit the most important thing is that knowing when to call and when not to call and over calling and watch how that bird reacts. Um, that is so important. And I've had birds walking away that there is no way you're going to call them in. I've had a few with pro callers. They were good enough. They turned them around, but I more than likely can turn them around more with a Dave Smith decoy and the Strutton 360 than I can being a professional caller. And I'm taking nothing away from those guys. Uh, but you can definitely over call and call at the wrong time. And 
learning those things comes with experience and you just got to get out in the woods is what you got to do. But that's an important aspect of calling. Right. And you don't have to be able to make um, all the sounds that a champion caller can, can do um, on the stage. And, and um, there's just some incredible sounds that they're able to reproduce. But I mean, me, I, I really have a very limited uh, vocabulary on a call, but um, I've just always felt like it's more important to know, you know, proper timing than, than it is to be able to make a whole bunch of really fancy sounds. You are absolutely right. 110%. And I think a lot of the accomplished turkey hunters that I know, uh, a lot of guys most certainly better than I am, would say the same thing. Sometimes it's better just to be quiet than it is to try to make any kind of call. And and I will say this, some of the worst turkey calls I've ever heard were made by real turkeys. So, you know, the other thing is, is, is if someone is calling and they kind of mess up a little bit, you know, just stop for a little bit, let it sit and maybe try again. But that's that's how you learn, you know, you learn what the pressure's on, but that is so important to try to figure out or learn or try to have somebody explain to you what works for them. But when to call and not and not when to call is one of the most important aspects of killing birds. The, uh, the bad news on that is there's almost no way to learn that without just a bunch of experience. But another thing that I would add is um, just getting a natural cadence down is important besides your timing. That's incredibly important. And there's a lot of video out there on the internet, a lot of web pages and cadence is so important. I usually hear people calling too slow rather than trying to match the cadence. And there are times when a bird will call slow, but, uh, I think rhythm, one, and two, knowing when to call and when not to, if if you can kind of figure those out and you're absolutely right, most of that comes with experience. You just got to get out there and be in the woods and, and mess up and then learn from that time you messed up because God knows I've messed up enough times, um, but cadence, volume, and when to and not to call, that'll help you kill more birds than being a professional caller, I believe. That and uh, strutting 360 paired up with a DSD, right? Hey, that <laughs> that is an unstoppable combination. If only there was a way that somebody could could win a combination like that. Absolutely. They just need to go check out our web pages, I think. Um, we're involved in a uh, joint giveaway with uh, uh, RJ Duncan Company, our Strutton brand, Dave Smith Decoys, and Raised Hunting. And I think uh, they can go check that out on any of our web pages. And there's an opportunity for folks who, who have none of that to uh, capitalize. And in this giveaway that we're talking about is for 
uh, one Strutton 360, one of our new DSD posturing hen decoys, and a one-year subscription to Raised Outdoors. And I'm curious because I don't know much about Raised Outdoors. Uh, Richard, if you could elaborate on them for us. Yeah, I have known those guys for a while. Um, of course, they've, they've got a show. It started with Raised Hunting. Um, I think it's a phenomenal show. They're uh, wonderful people, and they're all about education, getting people in the outdoors, helping them be successful, and they're just a fun group of people to be around. They've got some books out now you can buy, um, and uh, I've, I went and represented us at one of their uh, deer hunting events last fall. Uh, they had a uh, turkey hunting event uh, last weekend, and of course, we were hunting in Florida and wasn't able to attend that, but it's a great group of folks. It's very educational. I think it's uh, it's very real, and uh, they, they shoot a lot of good footage that you can pick up a lot of tick trips or um, tips and tricks to help you be more successful and they do other things other than just turkey hunting you know they're big deer hunters they're big elk hunters uh they come from montana originally and they live in iowa now and and uh hunting those big white tails there but it's a great group mm -hmm. i've got a couple of their books i've read them they're very inspirational and it's uh it's a great path to follow that they're uh, putting out there and giving everybody an opportunity to do that. When is that? Is that a uh, that that giveaway package? Is that a is that a random drawing? And when does the drawing take place? Scott, you're going to have to help here. I think it runs <laughs> is it through April 9th, maybe. Uh, it's a random okay. drawing. Yeah. Scott, can you give us the details of how and where our listeners can go to sign up? Okay, very cool. So for anyone listening, you better jump on it now. All right. Well, the, then the nice the nice thing is is that uh, the winner will be announced very soon too. So that's exciting. So again, get on it. That's coming quick. It is coming quick. Yeah. Great opportunity at some fine products. Richard, you made you made me feel better about myself because I have people ask me questions all the time about DSD. And, uh, I, I'm always, <laughs> I'm always like the last one to know anything. Cause I'm just, I, you know, I work, I work over here a hundred miles away from the shop, you know, by myself in a, 
in like uh, my little garage here. And uh, people will ask me these questions that I absolutely should know the answer of, and I don't know. So it's it's good to know that we we almost stumped you on on one question, anyways. Well, uh, I'm I'm going to be the first to say that I've I've found what has been successful for me, and I try to learn every day I hit the woods. Uh, I've found things that have have worked, and I continue to use those over and over again. But uh, there's there's most certainly people out there that that uh, are going to know more about it than I do, but. It's a, a big passion of mine, and um, I guess it has been able to, I've been able to couple my love for engineering with my passion in the outdoors hunting uh, big gobblers. That's awesome. Yeah, that's, that is, that is awesome. Yeah, we just, we love it. And it sounds, sounds a, a lot like, a lot like our like our situation too. It's just just so fun and such a blessing when you can, you know, tie tie what you really love to do uh, with with you know why how you're making your living. Well, and another um, similarity I see between uh, Strutton 360 and DSD is that you know um, it it sounds to me, Richard, like when you and when you created the Strutton 360, you were really looking for a better tool for your own turkey hunting. And that's, you know, that's what, what, you know, Dave and I, and, and all of us here at DSD were, were looking for when we created, um, our line of decoys, not just turkeys, but, but geese and now deer as well, you know. That's absolutely right. You know, I, I guess I'm, I'm extremely competitive and to me when i was younger it was all about killing birds i used to run and gun and and kill birds anywhere any way i i could i should say legally i better put that in there but um <laughs> it was it was a way that uh i had figured out early on that if i could do this i'm going to be more successful and not only be more successful, but my time in the woods is going to be more enjoyable. I didn't really know that I was going to be able to see some of those things that I've been able to see, but it's just been the coolest experience tying those two things together, but you're absolutely right. It was a solution to a problem I had. It wasn't necessarily my idea to, to invent this thing and, and create some great company. It was just so I could have more fun in the outdoors and be more successful and have fun doing it. Yeah, and that's a huge part of it right there. I think for both of our products, whether you're you're talking about the Strutton 360 or turkey decoys in general, you know, it's not something that you have to have and and some people, you know, will tell us uh from time to time, "Oh, you don't need decoys to to kill birds, you know, blah 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 blah." And that's not the point. They're missing the point. We know that you don't need decoys, but 
what you're missing without decoys is is the fun, the fun aspect that it brings to it. And and it's the same. I, I think you would agree probably with the Strutton 360. Absolutely. You know, I I think one of the things I've found, and I'm sure you guys have as well, you know, uh, the hunting industry and, and, and the gun industry is in an under attack all the time. And we need to keep kids in it. And one of the funnest things I've had is not only the personal experiences that you hit the nail on the head, it's being out there and watching a bird do this. And I've literally had birds come in that I filmed that I never shot. And I have my shotgun with me or my bow with me, but just sit there and experience it. But what I was gonna what I was gonna say is to have a little kid come up and say that, you know, I ran the Strutton 360. And uh, either my dad shot the bird, my mom or I shot it. And it's it's getting those folks involved at a young age so that, you know, 50 years from now, uh, this sport that we love is going to continue. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. A- amen to that. And that's, And we all have to be proactive in that making sure that 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 happens too so uh well richard listen we've we've taken up a lot of your time but uh we can't tell you how much we appreciate your uh your your wisdom and uh you also you know make our products look good and we we appreciate the partnership uh very very much i've i've really relished the partnership and and i think we've got a lot of great things to come um I love the products. I love the robustness of them. And and some people ask me, why do I use DSD? And and basically, one of the things is this, and that is, you know, I'm hunting 10, 12 states a year. I'm throwing decoys in and out of trucks every day, packing them, unpacking them, dragging them across the ground. And the first three-quarter strut, Jake, I think I bought that thing in 2012. It's been shot head-on with three-and-a-half-inch, 12-gauge turkey loads. And that decoy, and you'll see it in my videos and every, just about every one we post, looks dang near as good today as when I bought it. And... Um, you know, when you're out there hunting every day and, and doing what we do, uh, you want something that's going to last. And I tried to put that same thing in my Strutton 360 that it meets the demands of, you know, the, the full-time hunter. And uh, that's what I like about Dave Smith decoys is they look good. They last, you know, I think if folks buy the decoy and take care of it, it'll last them a lifetime. And so that's what's important to me. And they do look good spinning around on a strutting 360 for sure. 
absolutely and that the the quality the the high quality that you speak of um that's why we love your product too and and we firmly believe that it's always cheaper in the long run to invest in quality in the beginning yeah well we sure appreciate your support richard unfortunately we are out of time um but tell us real quick before we sign off uh, where can our listeners go to learn more about your products and to place an order? You can check us on, check us out on Facebook or Instagram at Richard Duncan Strutton 360, or you can visit us on the webpage at www.rjduncan.com. And then we've got our YouTube page and you can look that up by searching for Strutton 360 as well. Right on. Well, yeah, everybody that's listening, be sure to check out um, rjduncan.com and them on Facebook and Instagram um, for the full line of, of Strutton, Strutton 360 and Strutton products. Um, Richard, thanks again so much for joining us and best of luck this season. Stay safe. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of DSD Hunting Podcast. Um, we really appreciate you helping us grow this podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, or even just share on social media. Uh, that goes a long ways. We'd love the chance to keep bringing fresh content. So if you don't already, follow us, Dave Smith Decoys, on Instagram and Facebook for updates on new episodes. We'll have opportunities for customers to get involved too with the conversation and ask questions. So keep an eye out every Friday for new episodes. And thank you so much for all your support and for listening to us.